Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Well, every year we step into the series. And uh, by the way, my name is Mike. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. Lovely to see you. So good to be here. Um, we step into the series every year, expecting that God will fill us with His Holy Spirit and realign us with His kingdom purposes. Now, here's what happens. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you come to faith, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is, you are given basically a deposit of God in you. It's like God's little down payment. Say, I'm, I'm going to come back and get that later. <laughs> Right? You're going to, trust me, you're going to need that down payment. But that's not enough for us. See, that's enough for us basically to, you know, to get past the bouncer into heaven. That's great. I'm really simplifying some theology here, I'm aware. <laughs> but it's not enough to be living our life right now. When Jesus said, I came to give you life and life in abundance, he didn't just mean down the road in heaven. He meant right now. And so we are baptized with the Spirit when we give our lives to Jesus, but we are filled with the Spirit when we invite God to enter us, to fill us with His presence, fill us to overflowing. And so that's what we ask for every year at this time. We remind ourselves of that. And we do it because our default as Christians in the West, as people in the West, is comfort. We want to go into the path of least resistance. Everything will do that. Your minds will do that. Your lives will do that. Your bodies will do that. Watch out if you're in your early 20s. It's coming. If you don't do something about it, they will go to the path of least resistance. That's what happens. That's what we do. We become convinced that comfort is, is the sign of a fruit of a life with Jesus as opposed to obedience. We become convinced that it's about it's about our own happiness, whatever that means, rather than sacrifice. We actually start to say that the things of the world are the proof of God, as opposed to the things of God. And so we've got to realign ourselves with the Spirit. We get addicted to the things of this world, and we need the things of God. So if you are here today, and you are longing for the presence of God, you're longing for an encounter with Jesus, then this is for you. This is for you. I want to start by talking about badly packaged wine, okay? So... A couple of weeks ago, Jenny and I went to open a bottle of wine, went to our, our cupboard where the wine's kept, and I was looking for something a bit different. I was like, all right, what's this? I found one I hadn't seen before. Now, this is not that unusual. My dad is the king of buying like 24 bottles of really average cheap wine and then convincing me it's great and giving one to me as a gift, and then we'll just sort of find it there later. So I'll be like, okay, so it's probably one of those, and it looks a bit manky. It's got this sort of white and blue label. It's been there for a while, I guess. We'll just give it a crack, and if it's not any good, it becomes cooking wine. Yeah? Okay. So we crack it open, and we, then we think, ah, oh, we should probably have Googled this. Ah, oh, well, smells all right. Pour out a couple of glasses. We let it sit. Take a sip, and we're like, this is pretty good, actually. This is really, really good. So we Google it. It's $125 a bottle. And we're, it's like a Thursday night or something. Like, it's nothing exciting. We don't have friends over. We're like, oh. This should not be cooking wine at any point in time, ever. What are we going to do with this? We're not going to go through this. So we, we just had to, you know, make sure we drank it on Friday night as well. It became a thing we had to do. Now, what do you do? It's the sacrifice you make. But the point is this. It's not always what you look at or what you get. 
Sometimes we get the most ordinary packages and what's inside them is something extraordinary. And that is the story of the human experience as followers of Jesus. We are not that crash hot. We are very, very ordinary people. And God is longing to do something in and through us through His Holy Spirit. And that is something extraordinary. You are $125 bottles of wine waiting to be unpackaged, waiting to be uncorked. That is a vision of God for your life. Now, this is a simple and beautiful message, right? It's very, very powerful, very simple. It's the power of God in the hands of ordinary people. People like me, people like you, the people of God. And the theology is this. We just recognize there's a gap. We look at God and we look at ourselves and we go, there is a gap there. And so we throw ourselves on the mercies of God again and again and again and say, how extraordinary is God to you, somebody ordinary like me? Except we don't really say that very much, do we? Like if we're being honest. That's the theology. But how many of us know that sometimes our practice and our theology doesn't match up? That is what we believe about God doesn't match up with how we live. That's the same if you're an atheist too in the room. Sometimes you can live in a way as if there is a God and blame God for problems. But what you believe about God is that he doesn't exist. And that's something you've got to reconcile. For us as followers of Jesus, it's the other way around. We got these beliefs about how we should live. And then sometimes we just behave in ways that are totally antithetical to it. And look, really, it is quite difficult for us. Because if you're 40 and under in the room, you have grown up being told all your life that you are so deeply special. You are so unique. You are a snowflake. You are to be affirmed. There is no one like you. And then we grow up and we begin to realize that everyone's being told this same message. And have you ever seen thousands of snowflakes together? They're not very distinctive, are they? They just sort of clump together. And suddenly you realize if everybody is special, maybe nobody is special. But I've been told all my life that I'm special. What do I do with that? My entire generation was fed on this. Like We all genuinely think we're going to be astronauts and ballerinas. It, it's still happening. There, there is a generation coming up now where something like 8 out of 10 believe they're going to be famous someday. I, I don't have the heart to tell them what their odds are actually like on that. There is a disease being touted now by some popular psychologists, very well-known guys, called the Truman Show disease. Right? Who's seen the Truman Show, the movie? Right? This is based on that movie. The idea that people believe that they're in a reality television show and everyone else is a character in it. There are hundreds of these people. So they're sort of right on the brink now of working out whether this, this can be sort of you know, um, identified and named an official disease, but it's sort of right on the edge of it at the moment. Now, it's very awkward to hear that hundreds of people genuinely believe they're the center of a reality TV show. It's far more awkward to have those thoughts in the back of your mind, oh, I've definitely wondered where the other characters in my life go when they're not in the room. <laughs> Some of you have had this thought before. You're like... I wonder if when they leave the room, are they really still there or is it, is it just me? This is what we end up doing. We become narcissists in the West. We become convinced we are the center of our own gravity. But the meaning of this passage and, of, and in fact, the whole human experience and the power of the Holy Spirit at work is that you and I are not that special. Your mother was wrong. <laughs> we are not that special, but God chooses to work through us anyway. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things through them. That is the power of the human experience. That is the power of the Spirit of God. And that's what this text is about. So why don't you open up your Bibles with me today to Acts 3. We are going to go through some scripture today. Acts 3, Acts 4. We're going to fast forward through it because there's some stuff going on that we need to tap into. In today's text... 
This is the first we see of the disciples after Pentecost. So John and Peter, prominent disciples, we've just seen the day of Pentecost happen. Thousands come to Christ. They're speaking in foreign languages, tongues of fire. And now it's the next scene, in effect. And what do we see? They are going to pray. This is the first thing we see. Pentecost is bathed in prayer. It begins in prayer. And this next story begins in prayer as well. This is not a coincidence. Great moves of God begin in prayer. So Peter and John go to the temple to pray, just like good Jewish people. But they are Jewish people with a difference. And they come and they have this encounter with a crippled man. Now, what you've got to understand about this crippled man is this crippled man is, is not a lonely figure, right? He has friends. We know he has friends because every day his friends come and bring him to the gate to beg. So his friends aren't necessarily providing for him, but they're there with him. So it's an interesting figure in the, in the Gospels and in the uh, story of the early church because this guy actually does have a community. So they bring, his friends bring him to the gate called Beautiful and he sits there begging. And he just kind of has his hand out asking for money without particularly looking. He's just on autopilot. He does this every single day. He has friends, but he doesn't have what he needs. So he asks for what he thinks he needs. How many of the time do we ask for what we think we need and we're asking for the wrong thing? We come to God and we're like, God, God, I, I, I need a girlfriend. I need a boyfriend. I need a spouse. And God's like, no, 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 no. You need some character is what you need. And we're like, God, God, I need some money. And God's like, no, 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 no. You, you need something much more than that. We ask for money. God challenges us, lift up your eyes. And that's exactly what Peter and John do. This guy's just got his hand out for money. He's not even looking at them. I don't know if you've ever had an encounter like this with somebody who's maybe homeless or begging, and, and they're not even really trying to engage with you. And it's not a shame thing. Sometimes it is. But often it's just, I'm just on autopilot. I'm here all day, man. I'm just, if I get something, I get something. If I don't, I don't. I'm just here for a crack. I'm just having a go. And so they've got their hand out, and Peter and John say, look at me. Because I don't know if you've had that experience with somebody begging for money. But I do know that there's a pretty good chance that your family members and friends have had that experience with you, where you've been in the room asking them for something and you haven't really been present. You've only been present for what they can do for you. I'll just leave that there. Peter and John come in and they say, look at me. And the beggar, the text says, he looks up and he expects to get something from them. But the text is not clear what he expected to get because it was very different. The beggar turns. Peter doesn't have money, but he has the power of God. And he says this, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. He clasps the beggar's arm, pulls him to his feet, and the beggar begins to walk. See, church, Peter didn't have what the beggar asked for, but he does have what the beggar needs. And again and again, you're going to come, you're going to find you have friends and family members who have questions about the Christian faith. And some of them are really good questions, and some of them are not. And some of them, some of your family and friends, they will come with questions like this. Yeah, but who created God? You don't really want the answer to that question. The answer is in the question. If you wanted it, you would think about it. You are trying to antagonize. Now, the thing about that answer is you can't answer it. You can't. What you can do is build a relationship with this person. What you can do is address the deeper needs because that comes out of a place of genuine skepticism or hurt. You don't have the answers. You might not have the finance, but you have the same thing that Peter and John have. You have the name of Jesus and the power and authority of the Holy Spirit in you. You have the exact same thing the apostles have. We forget this. We come on a Sunday morning. We're like, oh, I'm just trying to get through this COVID season. That's not enough. 
It's not enough for any of us. It's not enough for you. It's not enough for me. It will never be enough. But if you have the power of God in you, it has the capacity to transform you. And that's what we are here for, church. Peter speaks of Jesus as if his very name has power. You ever notice how much power is in a name? You ever made a reservation at a restaurant or a hotel? Now you can't get in unless the right name is there. Or worse, have you ever been sent to pick up something by somebody else and it's in their name and they won't let you get it because it's the wrong name? Very, very frustrating. Have you ever, uh, have you ever become friends with somebody because you have an interest in the same person, the same name, and you just say that name out loud and they're like, I love that too. Oh my gosh. You ever been called by your full name in public? It's terrifying. Nobody wants that. You know you're in trouble immediately. The power of the name is really, really evident. And, and this is what we see in this story. Let me tell you about two guys, Scott and Gaz, okay? There's, there's the power of some names. Not only have they never met, they've never even heard of each other. They aren't aware each other exists. But here's the story. The power of my mate Scott. My mate Scott, several years ago, was talking to this guy called Luke. And this guy, Luke... Know Scott and trust Scott. And Scott said, you should go and meet Mike. He's planning a church. I think you'd be interested. And Luke didn't know me from a bar of soap, but he knows Scott. He trusts in Scott's name. So he comes and meets with me. And then he goes, meets with his then girlfriend, a little kid called Christy. And Christy doesn't know me, but Christy knows Luke, trusts in the name. They come and meet. Then they go and they invite their friend Jim. Jim's never met me before, but he trusts in Christy. So along comes Christy. Then Jim invites his family. And then Jim comes along and tries to get a family and is having a family. That's a whole other story. But he brings his family and then he starts to tell his family who live in all sorts of places about, about his church and about what's happening. And some of those family are in Queensland. And so he tells them, and they've got a friend in Queensland who is coming to Adelaide called Matt. And so Jim's family tell Matt, you should go to Encounter when you get to Adelaide because they tr he, Matt trusts in their name. They trust in Jim's name. Jim trusts in Christy's name. Christy trusts in Luke's name. Luke trusts in Scott's name. Only Scott knew me. Only one person knew me in this link. Matt comes to encounter, begins to start going through Discovery Bible Method and thinks, I could do this with my friend Gaz. I could engage with somebody who's asking questions of faith. And so he begins to talk to Gaz about a different name entirely, the name of Jesus. These people have never met. And this is a story that's happening right now that hasn't finished yet. I hope there's another link from Gaz in this story. It involves three states, many, many families, and only one person who actually knew me personally. That person doesn't go to our church. This is all about the trust and the power of a name. And when you don't trust in my name, like Scott did, or in Christy's name, like Jim did, but you trust in the name of Jesus, the power is exponential. Because in the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven, on earth or under the earth, by which man can be saved. Under no other name can we be saved except by Jesus. It's the only name that has the power to do that. And so we cry out to that name, in that name, when we need to see transformation in our life. That's what's happening in this passage. So Peter helps this man to his feet, heals him in the name of Jesus. And this man begins to walk. He stands, he jumps, he dances, he praises. He's going, my testimony. I told you when you didn't expect it, Michael. He's praising. He is praising God. That is the natural reaction, by the way, to an encounter with Jesus praise and sing not today but other days the power of God is shown the name of Jesus is declared and a crippled man is healed 
And this is where our story begins today. It begins at verse 11. See, Peter sees the astonishment of the people and he begins to preach to them about Jesus, the crucified one, who was killed in this city, Jerusalem. Guys, they're all still in Jerusalem. They're still in the place where the Messiah was murdered and it was raised to life again. And so Peter begins to preach to the people around him. He says, don't you understand? Don't look at us like we've got any power. We didn't have any power. The name of Jesus is where the power is. Put your trust in that name. And so Peter begins to direct them back to the name of Jesus. And this creates a stir. When he says that Jesus has the power of God, this creates a stir. When he says Jesus rose from the dead, that creates a stir. And so the temple guards come along, sent by the priests, and drag them away. They're convicted of preaching blasphemy and throwing in prison. But there's a different kind of conviction happening. 5,000 people declare the name of Jesus is the name of the Lord and put their trust in Jesus under the name of Jesus and join with the disciples and the apostles. So Peter and John are dragged off into prison, but 5,000 others come to Jesus that day. Is that a worthwhile trade? Would it be a worthwhile trade if it was us? It's that kind of conviction God wants for us. What would have to be enough, I wonder? There are two different convictions here. Two different convictions. One that convicts the heart and sends people calling on the name of Jesus. And a second that incites fear and convicts Peter and John and throws them in jail. But the story hasn't finished. We get to Acts chapter 4 verse 5 now and it's the next day. Peter and John have spent a long night in prison and they're dragged out before the rulers and elders and leaders of the temple and the people. I can't imagine how rough they looked after a night in prison. They begin to question them and the question they ask is so fascinating. By what power or in what name have you done this? Because there was no denying the miracle. There was just, there's no point in denying the miracle. That's the beauty of miracles. Like, well, I can't really deny that happened. I can try and circumvent it. I can try and talk around it. I can try and maybe justify it, but I can't deny it. It's right there. Hundreds of people saw it happen. The beggar was a regular. You see how the story, Luke makes a point of saying this beggar was there every day. So this wasn't some random who could have been faking it. The beggar was there every day. They knew he'd been crippled before. The question was not if a miracle would happen. The question was how? How? Then the text tells us that then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Not until chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, that's called being passive aggressive, by the way, in case you're wondering. If we are being examined today about a good deed to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, Peter's not confused, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. And he goes on to quote a psalm. He says, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And he finishes by saying this, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter is so clear. He's so bold. This is the same guy who denied Jesus three times on the night of his death. He is so clear and bold in front of all the leaders. It's so funny that on the night of Jesus' death, Peter is challenged by a waitress, effectively, and starts cursing and denying Jesus. But when he's dragged before the rulers and leaders, he boldly, out of prison, he boldly declares the name of the Lord. He's got nothing to lose. 
and he's got everything to gain. He's seen the kingdom of God. He knows what he's inheriting. He's not worried about that. He's like, this is what I'm living out of, not for anymore. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm not worried about that. I live under the name of Jesus. So Peter speaks to the most important people that their culture had. He speaks words of conviction, of boldness and authority because he did it empowered by the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Friends, this is the whole key to how to live out your faith. If you're wondering how to do it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you started, what you dream of, what your struggles are, whether you think you're spiritual enough, whether you think you've had this divine encounter or you have and you're not sure and you're asking questions about it, it's okay. All you need to ask yourself is this, can you put your trust in the name of Jesus? Can you start in that place? Can you put your trust in the name of Jesus? Which means putting your life under the authority of the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Can you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and will you then step out in his power and authority? Can you do those things? That's really what it means to be a Christian, to do those things. I trust in the name of Jesus. I'm inviting the Spirit to fill me. I'm stepping out in faith. That's kind of it. If you can do that, there are no limits to what God can do through you. And I talked before about how we have all grown up, most of us in this room, believing we're very special, being told we're special. And, uh, you know, the thing about everybody calling you special means nobody is special. But because of that, we've, we've nursed this weird inferiority complex. So on one hand, we're incredibly special, but on the other hand, nobody's special. So we're, we like feel this incredible call that we're meant to be doing with our life, but feel, you know, sin takes over, humanity takes over. We realize I can't actually do all of this on my own and everybody's special, so nobody's special, so I can't possibly live up to that. And the gap grows and the inferiority complex builds. Church, there's a reason we feel this way. There's a tension within us between our sinful natures and the glory of God. That's the tension. That's what that gap really is. It's the expectations that this is who God is and this is who we are. And we can put on a front. We can lie about it. But when we get home and we look deep inside ourselves, at our darkest moments, who are we? God sees us inside and out. He's not confused. We're not deceiving him. But we try to. We try and put on that face and deceive ourselves and deceive others. God is inviting us to come home with honesty. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 7. He's talking about greatness and the tendency towards sin. And he's talking about wrestling with attention. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus. That's shining in our hearts. Then he goes on to say this. Now we have this treasure in clay jars, that is fragile jars, things that can be easily broken so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. There's a reason we're fragile. There's a reason we so often fall and struggle. It is because we are struggling with the tension of our own innate sin, our own fragile selves, and the glory and goodness of an almighty God who's filling us. We are jars of clay bursting from the seams with the light of God. That is the walk of a Christ follower. And we've got to now come back to the heart of this story because we haven't really got to the point yet. Jesus has been raised from the dead by God. The Holy Spirit is unleashed on the world, filling believers with his presence. This is a story about the power of God in the hands of ordinary people and here's where it all comes together. Peter finishes boldly declaring that only through Jesus can we find salvation. 
Only through him can we find a full life of divine purpose now and life in eternity. And then the narrative turns and Luke, instead of talking through the person of, of Peter, starts to look through the person and the people of the rulers and elders. And this is what they see. They look, the people in power look at Peter and John and they see something extraordinary. This is what it says, verse 13. They saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. What a glow up. Unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note. Hear this church. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. The only defining factor. This is the key verse. Our tendency is to look at people, to look at what they look like on the outside and go, oh, they're gifted. Or to look at what they can do. And maybe even you look up at me and, and, and the singers and Jared and the team and go, oh, I could never do that. But it's not about what they look like. It's not about what's going on on the outside. It is about who they put their trust in. It's about who they have been with. And if you are here and your desire is to live a life of power, of authority, of transformation, both of you and of the world, you need to be with Jesus. This is what they took note of. It is the only thing that made them stand out. Peter and John had never been to like Rabbi Harvard, they had never gone there. They were not in the training school. They were fishermen. But Jesus called them. What did he see in them? Followers, really? That's it. We don't get any clarity. There's never a sense of like, well, Jesus, he just knew. He just, I mean, he did, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing in the text of the call of the first disciples to say, oh, well, he called Matthew because he needed someone who was good with numbers. No, he didn't. We know that because Jesus was like, yeah, you know what? Judas Iscariot can look after the money. <laughs> Jesus didn't look at things the way we did. Jesus sees that there is something going on and his number one priority is this. Will you be with me? Not what can you do for me? Not what have you learned? Not what, where have you started? Not what do you think about yourselves? If you're in this room and you wrestle with self-esteem, Jesus is saying all you need to do is be with me. If you're in this room and you wrestle with panic and uncertainty and anxiety or depression, Jesus says, be with me. If you're in this room and you think, I think I could be good, but I could never live up to the standards of my parents. I could never live up to the standards of my grandparents. I see people out there, I could never be like that. Jesus says, be with me. That's the call of God. That's the essential part of being a follower of Jesus is the following. It is the being with. That is what sets apart John and Peter in this moment. Peter and John were unschooled, but they had been with Jesus. The King James Version calls them unlearned and ignorant. KJV, man, doesn't pull punches. Church, the life you long for doesn't come from pursuing education or personal development. It doesn't come from self-care or building a family to affirm your sense of self. I have all these things and I've done all those things, by the way. They're not bad, but they become idols if we don't set our hearts on being with Jesus. And every time we let anything else threaten that, our lives begin to look different. And their life begins to look diminished. The light inside of us begins to get dull. And it gets dull because we want it to get dull. We're tired. We're bored. It's easier not to. And it is. It is easier not to follow Jesus, just in case you're curious. Sometimes I hear people saying things like, oh, you know, it just seems so easy, so convenient to be a Christian. Really? Peter was crucified upside down. That's how he died. Not super convenient. It is distinctly inconvenient to be a Christian, but it is true. 
And when we call on the name of Jesus, we call on the truth. And there is power in that name. That is what we seek to do. And God, the wonder-working God, is saying this. You don't have to be special. It doesn't matter if you've never seen the potential in you because God says, I want to use you anyway. And the gaps, the flaws, I will use those to shine my greatness even brighter. This is where it lands at the end of this narrative. Verse 21. After the leaders and rulers and authorities, and uh, band, you guys can get back up. After they've tried to threaten Peter and John, stop them preaching and healing in the name of Jesus, they basically give up. They just, they just kind of throw their hands up in the air and they don't know what to do. They just threaten them. They're like, don't do that again. And Peter and John go, no, we're still going to do it. And they're like, all right then. And like that, that is literally how the narrative ends for the rulers and elders. Now, here's why. It tells us there was a man visibly healed in front of witnesses. A miracle has happened. This man then gives glory to God because of this. So the priests are like, well, I mean, he's giving glory to God and it's clearly a miracle. And then 5,000 others give glory to God because of this. The fruit proves itself. See, preaching about Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and stepping out in faith was glorifying God the Father. There's the Trinity at work right there. Beautiful. There was nothing the priest could do, only empty threats, because the name of Jesus and the power of Holy, the Holy Spirit had not just transformed one man's life, but 5,000. 5,000. And finally... The same story that began in prayer ends in prayer. The disciples gather together. They tell this story. They praise God and they pray. And we might pray, you know, you've just been threatened by the most powerful people. And they might pray for, for protection. They might pray for support. They might pray, Lord, increase us in numbers so that we might take over. We might become the cultural elite. No, no, no. This is what they pray. Say, Lord, consider those threats. Like in light of those threats, I guess. Give us greater boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. As the threats increase, God, would let you let the boldness increase. Lord, we're ordinary. We, we don't have anything special, but we've been with Jesus. And because we've been with Jesus, it's not just that we have some glow about us. It's that we know. We have tasted and seen the goodness of God. We know that you are real. And so we ask for boldness, Lord. Not for protection, for boldness. What a prayer to pray over our children. Boldness, not protection. Spiritual strength and authority, not comfort. And it says, when they finished praying, the room was shaken. Now I tell you, here's why that's significant. When you see the room shaking in Scripture, the presence of God has shown up in power. Isaiah chapter 6, he steps into the throne room in a vision and the room shakes at the crucifixion of Jesus, there is an earthquake. The curtain is torn from top to bottom. It shakes. The presence of God has shown up in power. You ready for this room to shake? Are you ready, church? Are you ready? God wants to do an extraordinary work. But we've got to want it. And we've got to be with Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. 
To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.